The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or lifehousechurch.org. Tremendous change can start with one small act, something as small as a broken window. That broken window can be one act of crime, one act of neglect, one act of hate. One broken window opens the door to many more, and the shattered glass at this house starts to shout the self-fulfilling story of a broken street. Before we know it, reality begins to bend around this new perception. This distorted environment starts producing refuse it never had before. Value drops, poverty rises, homelessness moves in. Broken homes and families, abandoned wives, mothers and children. Gangs, violence, murder, and a drug epidemic taking more lives than we can count. Word begins to spread from conversations to a headline to a full-blown narrative. And finally, we're branded with the ugly nicknames and a repulsive reputation. The condition of the street spread to the block, transmitted to the community, and infect the entire city. And from one broken window, we're now left with a broken city. Well, tremendous change can start with one small act. So that's where we start, with small, singular acts of goodness. We fight neglect with care. We combat crime with service, and we battle hate with love. We mend, repair, rebuild, one window at a time. As God's hands and with Him on our side, we serve, give, and live for our city, believing that the tides can and will be reversed. Believing that we are the catalyst that transformed this city, healed, mended, restored, made new. We stop the trash talk, flip the script, change the conversation. We rewrite the headlines and recreate the reputation our city will carry. God is for our city. The church is for our city and we are for our city. I want you to picture it. A man arrested for his part in a nonviolent protest, standing up against racial injustice and civil inequality. And sitting in his prison cell in 1957, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a sermon. A sermon that became famous for, this, for these specific lines, where he wrote, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. And hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. What would you have written, honestly? If we were to be real about it. If I was sitting in prison because I was arrested for standing up for the safety and the well-being and the justice of people that I consider to be family and friends, what would I have written? Here's what I know, that most of us respond hate for hate, selfish acts for selfish acts. Some person writes something mean about us on social media, and so we just write something meaner. One meme for another meme. One protest for another protest. And so we retaliate and we act out in revenge, and what it begins to do is it begins to tear us apart and tear our communities apart, and what we get is our differences that leads to division. And we are divided, aren't we? One nation, divided by God and faith, politics, economy, jobs or the lack thereof. And as we get more and more divided, we start to dehumanize the very people we interact with. In fact, our attitude is, 
I'm number one. Now that works really good when it's your sports team. Look, I'm a Yankee fan. You're all allowed to boo. Really? That's all you got? Really? Y'all are terrible. Now some of y'all, maybe you're Orioles fans. Any Orioles fans out there? That's awesome. See, that's good. I'm I'm actually an Orioles fan too. And you'd be like, how could you do that? Look, the Orioles are my triple A team. Thank you. I've been working on it all week. Yeah, thank you. Got that? Thank you. It's my farm system team. Now, here's the deal, right? Like, it's okay to say my team's number one because we all understand that everyone's delusional when it comes to sports. When it be- where it becomes a problem is when I say I'm number one and anybody who looks like me is number one. If you're my color, you're number one. If you, if you agree with my political views, you're, you and I, we're number one. If you and I have the same kind of job or we live in the same block, we're number one which also means everyone else is not. If I'm number one, then somebody else is not number one. And so we put each other into groups and classes and we go, it's me versus you and us versus them. And we live in a divided nation with divided cities and divided communities and divided homes with a divided heart. Craig Cobb, He was arrested and charged for leading a violent attack as an angry white supremacist against a black black community in North Dakota, which I can't imagine there's a whole lot of uh, broad diversity in North Dakota. But regardless, he, he led a violent attack against a minority community and he was charged and convicted. And after he got out, uh, he was invited onto a reality TV show where they wanted to talk about racism. And before he got invited on, they asked him if he would undergo a DNA test. You know, like one of those like ancestry.com or something. And so they invited him on, he agreed. And then when he got on the show, he was like, I'm number one. People who look like me are number one, right? And he was like, it was like ridiculous. And people were booing him and like, you're an idiot. And we all, hopefully you would agree with that sentiment. Uh, and, and then they said, now for the moment, we've all been waiting for, we got your DNA test back. And they revealed that he is in fact, 86% European. So he's like Anglo. And he was like, yay. And they're like, yeah, but you're also 14% sub-Saharan African. Thank you. Right? Like that was exactly what everyone in the crowd did. They were like, yay! Ha ha ha! You're an idiot. Um, And kind of like calling him out. Why? What was the irony of this? Because genetically, he was showing hate and violence toward his own brothers and sisters. And it's like an aha, duh moment. Like what is wrong with Craig Cobb for going out, not even realizing that he was related in some way to these people that he hated and was being violent toward. And isn't that what we do? We get divided over whether or not there should be Confederate statutes in Civil War battlefields and whether there should be plaques on church walls and whether we, you know, how we should face issues like immigration and what about illegal immigration and what about having a wall or not having a wall and what if the illegal immigration was a young person who was brought over here, not by their own decision making, but by someone else's and then they grew up in this country and this is all they've ever known. Like, how do we deal with these issues? And most of us would be like, I don't know. So then let's stop hating and dividing ourselves over very complicated issues. And so what do we do? Let's talk about it. 
Because here's the deal, we're not all that different from the early church. An early church divided torn apart because persecution was spreading across Jerusalem. And because of the persecution, one group of religious people were going, we're number one. And so then they killed and mistreated Christians who then ran for their lives. They lost their jobs and lost their homes and they relocated from the community that they loved and they called home after they relocated. They would set themselves up in caves and in mountains. They would relocate to smaller villages and some would travel far to even relocate to other cities where they would try to begin to live their lives fresh and new as Christians. But in these Christian communities, after they relocated, still filled with hurt, still feeling mistreated, they then would take their mistreatment out on each other. And word began to spread that Christians were treating each other like this. And so the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, James, the brother of Jesus, wrote a letter, wrote a letter to the churches scattered. And he asked that this letter would be circulated across all of these churches in order to challenge and teach these Christians how to live rightly. And so we have access to that letter because it's included in the Bible, in the New Testament of the Bible, which tells the story of Jesus and the church after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended to heaven. The, book, the letter of James to the scattered church is included. In fact, it's one of the last letters uh, or one of the last books in the Bible. And this letter written by James to this scattered church, it's uh, in the second chapter, it reads this way. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. So who is he writing to? He's writing to the church, to people who believe in Jesus, and then he's challenging them. Stop it. Stop showing favoritism. Stop running around saying, I'm number one, and anybody who's like me is number one, and everyone else is not. And then to illustrate his point, he says, here's what you guys are doing, meaning not you, not even those of you that are watching us online. He's talking about the early church. So early Christians who were treating and mistreating people based on the value they could offer to them. He says this, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but then say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He goes... Don't most of us have this hardwired motivation to judge people based on what value they can add to us? We don't see people as individuals. We either see people as a problem or as a means to an end. So he said, here's what's going on in the church. People come in and we measure, we, we, we eye them up and measure them and then treat them according to how we believe they can benefit us. And he goes, this isn't right. Isn't that what prejudice and discrimination is all about? You aren't worth very much. You are worth a lot. And so I treat you as little and I treat you as much. And he said, what it's doing is it's destroying the church. It destroys our ability to be a, a voice of Jesus to a divided community. And so he goes, what, you wanna know how you counter the division in our lives, our homes, our communities, our cities, our country across the globe? He goes, you wanna know what the answer to this is? And then, so he just references back. 
to Jesus. He references back to when Jesus referenced back to an ancient law. And he simply summarized it in this statement. He goes, if you really keep the royal law found in the scriptures, meaning this is the one, this is the one that rises above all of the rest. If you really want to keep this law, which is love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. There it is. It's not any more or less complicated than that to simply love your neighbor as yourself. This one's tough because when Jesus taught it, he was in a crowd of people who were feeling mistreated by the Romans, abused and mistreated, being beat down, being divided by race, being divided by religion. And Jesus taught a crowd driven by religion. And he said, look, you want me to summarize it for you? Love God, love people, love your neighbor as yourself. And there was a guy in the crowd who was a religious lawyer, a religious elite, a religious scholar who, as it's recorded in the gospel according to Luke, responded to Jesus' statement, love your neighbor as yourself, with this. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And there it is. There it is, people who run around going, I'm number one, who am I obligated to actually love? And what this religious lawyer was trying to do was limit the scope of his responsibility to love people. And what he was hoping for was Jesus to justify his prejudice and discrimination because within this religious community, what they were doing was they were saying, yes, you have to love your neighbor, but your neighbor is only the person that is like you. Your neighbors only the people that are actually your neighbors. Well, guess what? Most of your neighbors are like you. They have a similar financial position. They probably have similar religious views. Your neighbors are a lot like you and you live in a community where a lot of people are a little bit like you. And so he, what he was trying to do was corner Jesus to agree and say, yes, you only have to love people that are a lot like you. But that wasn't Jesus' point. What was Jesus' point? Believe it or not, if you dig deep into the original language and you study the scriptures and you try to discover the context of what Jesus is saying, what he was saying to Patrick was this, love your neighbor. My challenge to you, quoting the words of Jesus, echoing the voice, or James echoing the words of Jesus was this, you and I, we need to love our neighbors. That's right, the meaning of that statement is, I need to love my neighbors. It's not that hard to say, it's just really hard to live out. Why? Because our community is being torn apart. Every time you read the news, every time you open up social media, every time you get into a debate or a controversial conversation, isn't the point, isn't what begins to happen is we begin to pit sides. But let me be really clear, what is tearing you apart, what's tearing your home and your community apart is not politics. It's not the imbalance of power. It's not the unfair distribution of wealth that is ripping at the core of our nation or our city or your heart or your home. No, you wanna know what's really going on? There is a swelling, yes, but the swelling reveals a sickness. Would you agree that there is a fever in our nation? Our nation has a fever. The fever reveals the sickness. And what's the sickness? It's called sin. 
And it's not just our nation's sickness. It's not just our city's sickness. It's your sickness and mine. That's right. I have an inner spiritual sickness called sin. And sin is what sabotages us and divides us and pits one against the other. Sin, which you and I were born with, is a spiritual sickness, a spiritual disease that metastasizes. And as a result, it separates us from relationship with God. It divides brother against sister, one group against another group. It destroys me because I give in to my own selfish desires and I disregard God and I do what I want, which leads to my ruin so that I am on a crash course with eternal judgment, but not just me, but you and your neighbors and our community and our city and it spreads and it destroys. And so what's the answer? God, unwilling to leave us on this crash course toward eternal judgment intervened in our story. Jesus, when he was asked the question about how do you summarize all of this? He gave a simple teaching. It's also recorded in the gospel of Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 40, where he, his answer is this, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. I'm gonna summarize it with a simple statement, love God. Could you, could you all join me? Even those of you that are watching online right now, would you just say, love God? Yeah. Really? You all got an extra hour of sleep. That's all you got in you? All right, one more time, ready? Love God. Love God. All right, then he continues. This is the first and the greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the, the first one is love God. love God. And the second one is love people. Love God, love people. Thank you, right, right? All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, meaning you could summarize all of the Christian faith, all of the history of the Bible into two statements, love God, love people. And here is the challenge what you and I get out of this. What we think is this is like a command that I have to try really, really hard to obey. And so it's like me trying to obey the speed limit. It takes a lot of work for me to restrain my desire to go fast and get, I'm always in a hurry. It doesn't matter how much time I have, I feel like I'm always late. It's late, it's kind of like my person, I'm a little ADHD, and so I'm always like, I gotta get there, I gotta get there. I don't care, whoever's in front of me, I'm racing them. And so it doesn't matter how, where we're going. You're in my way, I gotta get past you, and so I have to make myself drive slower, right? And so all of you law enforcement out there, thank you. We love you, you're our best friends. I know, right? And so I have to restrain myself. And what you hear is, I gotta, I gotta make myself love God. And then I have to make myself love people. But stop it, that's not the point. Let me borrow an illustration from boxing. In boxing, there's the guy that you know, right? There's the guys in the ring beating each other up. And when the bell rings after they've got their bell rung, they go back to their corner, right? And when they sit down, there's another guy the trainer, otherwise called the cut man. Another term for that person is the second. They're second. And their job is to care for the wounds, treat, provide medical care quickly for the boxer and encourage them, whispering their, hey, watch out for that left hook. He keeps tagging you, you gotta watch out for that, right? And they're coaching them, they're encouraging them, and then they're cleaning up their mess. I mean, they got blood dripping down, they're cleaning them up really quick. The role of the second is to care for the person getting beat up. And Jesus stepped in and became our second. But after sin threw its blow against us, 
and left us bloodied and battered on the ring floor, Jesus stepped in and took the death blow for us. Jesus took on our death sentence, the eternal judgment we deserve, he absorbed. So that when Jesus died, he died in our place. He absorbed our death and our sin judgment. But Jesus didn't stay dead on the boxing ring floor. He arose from the dead triumphant, defeating sin, conquering death, and giving us eternal life so that anyone who believes in Jesus by faith is forgiven of their sins, given new life. Jesus was wounded so that we could be healed. He was beaten so that we could be made whole. He died so we can live. And Jesus became our second and then did what only he could do by jumping in the ring for us. And when you believe in Jesus by faith, you are not only forgiven of your sins and given new life because God's spirit enters into your spirit, making you truly and eternally alive. He also gives you a new role so that when sin used to drive you to run around going, I'm number one, when you have Jesus, when you believe in Jesus by faith and God's spirit is in your spirit, you recognize that your role is to be a second. You put down, I was gonna say put down the finger, but it has many implications. You probably should put down the finger, especially if I'm driving next to you. <laughs> That was totally unscripted. That wasn't in my notes at all. I gotta keep moving here. Um, you put down the view that I'm number one and you pick up the role of a second. I'm here to serve. I'm here to assist people that are beaten and battered in life. And that's how most people feel. Which means that I take on the role of recognizing that my responsibility is to love my neighbor. And so how do you know what it means? And what does it look like to love your neighbor? Well, Jesus continues in his story as Jesus is telling the story. In Luke chapter 10, verse 31. So, so in order to teach the point where this religious lawyer says, well, who is my neighbor? In order to limit the scope of his love responsibility, Jesus tells a story. It's a simple story with a deep meaning. The story is this. There was this guy going down the street who gets attacked by robbers who beat him up who rob him of his belongings and his clothing and leave him stripped, beaten, and it looks like he's dead. And so Jesus in the story goes like this. A priest, kind of like as luck would have it, you know, if you're beaten and dying and a doctor goes by, you're like, whew, that worked out really good. If you're being robbed and, a, and a, a police officer goes by, you're like, as luck would have it. That's kind of what Jesus is doing here in this story. He goes, kind of like, as luck would have it, good fortune for you. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, wait, what? He passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite. A Levite would be someone whose profession upbringing responsibility was to work within the synagogue. His profession was religion. His job was to care for people. So as a Levite was, uh, came by the same place, he saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, so a Samaritan uh, would be, and everybody listening to Jesus knows this, a Samaritan was somebody who was from the other side of the tracks. Wrong race, wrong religion, wrong financial position. They were the outcasts. They were the ones that everyone else in the entire nation didn't like. And so Jesus is really using hyperbole to make a critical point. He goes, as the Samaritan goes by, 
As he traveled, came where the man was, he saw him and he took pity on him. And what's the point? What Jesus is doing here is he's saying, you wanna know what it means to love your neighbor? You wanna know who your neighbor is? You wanna know how you live this out on a daily basis in a practical way? Well, very simply, and I would encourage you to write this down. You can feel free to type this in uh, on your smartphone or tablet. Uh, maybe you're on Facebook Live. Uh, you can type this into the comment section. It's love, I love my neighbors when it's not about me. If I'm gonna love my neighbors, it means that it, my life cannot be about me. It means that I don't get to hold my hand up and go, I'm number one. It means I recognize that my role as a Jesus follower is to be a second. I sit on the sideline of the ring and when someone is getting beaten and battered, I care for them and I serve them. I clean up the wounds, right? That's the story. That's the story. He comes along and he sees a man dying, having been beaten and robbed, and he takes pity on him. Here is what the religious individuals were doing. Here's kind of what Jesus was poking at in this story. The priest and the Levite, because their profession was religion, if you were to touch a dead person in that time, you would become ceremonially unclean. What that meant was within the rules of their religion, they couldn't do their job for an entire week. They were unclean. They weren't allowed to go into this sanctuary. They weren't allowed to go into the synagogue. So the Levite couldn't do his job and the priest couldn't fulfill his responsibility. They would have lost in essence a week's worth of pay. And so they, they saw this dying man or dead man as it could have been and they determined I don't have time and this will cost me too much to get involved. And so they distanced themselves from this problem. Did you catch that? Our differences can create distance emotionally and physically so that we disengage and we allow division to tear our communities apart. But let me be very clear, what Jesus is driving at in this story is saying, when you see someone who's different from you and their needs are blaringly obvious, rather than allowing that to create distance that divides, we should see our differences as an opportunity to unify Right, so that there's a diversity that strengthens us. Did you catch that? The priest and the Levite use their religion to justify an emotional distance from people in need. There's a caution in this story. Jesus was pulling no punches. He was being very clear. Be careful not to use your religion to justify emotionally distancing yourself from people that are different from you and people that are suffering. We must, as people who believe in Jesus, see anyone and everyone who is hurting as a neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is anyone around you who is in need. You become their neighbor in their time of crisis. And what does it mean to respond to someone? Well, the Samaritan took pity on the man that was suffering. What did that look like? That meant that he was willing to get close. He was willing to close the emotional and physical distance and get close enough to care, close enough to listen, close enough to value someone as a person rather than seeing them as a problem. You and I have a responsibility. If the story of our life is not about me, 
Therefore, I'm willing to love my neighbor. Then who is it about? It's about Jesus. So I, Jesus was willing to close the gap. He descended from heaven, became one of us. I like the way in the message Bible, the message translation of the Bible in John, uh, in, in the book of John, where it says, Jesus moved into our neighborhood. He became a neighbor to us. He became like us. He became one of us. He moved, he entered into one of the poorest countries, an oppressed country, into a poor family. Sounds like a song. Uh, and Jesus became a neighbor to us, and then he absorbed our blow. He became our second. And then he invites us to become like him so that we move into the neighborhood. We see our neighbors as family. We see those in our community as our neighbors. We see people who are different than us as an opportunity to, for diversity to strengthen us rather than to tear us apart. And we're willing to slow down and listen so that we can love rather than label. We see people as precious and valuable. And then the story continues because he didn't just feel pity. It says that he took pity. What does it look like to take pity? Verse 34 of Luke chapter 10, he went to him and bandaged his wounds. He didn't just go, wow, I feel really bad. He went close to him. He picked him up. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. That doesn't mean he poured a, you know, a bottle of beer on him. It means that he put, he treated him medically. Then he put the man on his own donkey brought him to an inn and he took care of him. I mean, could you see the situation? What is Jesus alluding to? He's saying that this man got intimately close to the other man in need. He got dirty and messy. This man's filth got on him. His blood got on him. The next day he took out two denarii. That's, some, that's a good bit of money. I mean, that's a couple days wages and gave them to the innkeeper. What is the point? The point is that if I'm gonna love my neighbor, my story, the story of my life can't be about me, it's about Jesus, but it also means this. It means I'm gonna be giving, not getting. James said that so many people who are hurting and mistreated, they have started evaluating people for what they could get out of them. But Jesus tells a story to illustrate the point that when you start to see people as your neighbor, you measure them by what you can give, not get. And what did it cost him? It cost him time. I mean, he gave up, he was on his way somewhere. We're all on our way somewhere. He stops, he gets close. He closes the emotional and physical gap. He, he gets physically involved in the pain of this man's life. His pain becomes our pain. He spends time, multiple days. It costs him money, that's his treasure. And then he uses his abilities, that's his talents. It costs him time, talent, and treasure in order to give rather than get. You know what love sounds a lot like? Love gives and gives and gives, and when it hurts, it gives more. If you could capture that one thought, it could revolutionize your marriage. It could begin to revolutionize your friendships, your dating relationship. It could revolutionize how you interact with people online. It could revolutionize how you interact with people in the workplace. If you and I understand that, if we're going to receive love from God and then love God in response and love others in response, that means that we love by giving and giving and giving. And when it hurts, we give more. That means I'm not looking for what I can get from you, but how I can serve you, how I can be a second to you. Stop being afraid to let others, pe other people's pain get a little bit on you. Don't be embarrassed to be around people that are a little bit bloodied and beaten. 
Don't be afraid to let their mess make you look messy. In fact, you and I need to start smelling a little bit more like the pain and the problems of people around us. Rather than sterilizing our lives and avoiding the misfortunes and difficulties of others, you and I should smell a little bit more like the pain and the problems in the world around us. We should be, we should be covered in the difficulties of others. We should let their tears get on us, their pain get a little bit on us. And here's what will begin to happen. Where? One broken window creates a broken city. One repaired window can heal a city. Major change doesn't happen through the next person you elect. Major change doesn't happen through legislation or them increasing or decreasing taxes. Major change happens when people like you and I start to see others as their neighbors and we do minor little acts of loving by giving, not getting. There it is. And that healing starts with a little sprinkle that becomes a, a trickle, a little water flowing that becomes a stream that turns into a mighty river, a river that overwhelms and washes over the hurts and the hate that have devastated a nation. You and I are the response of God to the crisis and the pain and the problems around us. And it starts through the simplest acts of just simply loving each other as a neighbor. Is it possible that us loving our neighbors, seeing people who are hurting as a neighbor could change the world? Yes, it's possible. That was the prescription Jesus offered to lay down our we're number one hand and pick up the responsibility of being a second. By making my life not about me, by giving rather than getting. And so where are you at right now? For some, right now you're like, okay, I'm gonna go out there and love God and love people. No, 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 you don't have to do that. You don't have to try really hard. Let, let me challenge you. For you, it's simply receiving today. Your first step is to be so filled with God's love that it spills. Get filled up. Be overwhelmed by the love of God. Maybe your step is to receive Jesus Christ as the savior of your life. Could I encourage you right now? Let's take a prayer moment for every one of us. Pause and pray. Would you let God speak to you by his spirit speaking to your spirit? And maybe in that place of your life you didn't even know existed before. If today that first step for you is you need to make a decision for Jesus, then it's, it's simply a commitment. It's a faith step. Jesus, I believe in you by faith. Forgive me of my old way of living. I repent of my sin and I invite your spirit into my spirit. And if that's where you're at right now, you let somebody know. In, the, in your program, there's an envelope. It says, I made a decision for Jesus. You can fill that out. You can bring it to the Raise the Life banner or you can drop in the giving boxes. But the point is, we want you to let somebody know because we want to cheer you on as you begin this new journey of being raised up from that boxing ring where you've been battered and beaten. And we want to, we want to celebrate with you as you begin this new life of faith in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus right now, are you living it out? Are you running around saying we are number one? Or do you see your life as, a, as an opportunity to serve others by giving rather than getting? I, I wanna encourage you. Would you make that your commitment right now? God, help me to love. Help me not to make my life about me, 
Help me to live a life where I'm giving, not getting. Help me to see every person I interact with as a neighbor, not as a problem, but as a person. Now I wanna invite you to stand with me. Because, you know, one of the, as I've said in this sermon, one of the challenges I think that we get, kind of get determined, like, all right, I'm gonna go out and do this. And I'm saying, no, 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 don't you do anything yet. First, you get so filled up that it just spills out of you. Like it just happens because you love God. You're not gonna try really hard to love anybody. God is gonna pour his love through you. If you're in right relationship with God, this will just happen. You, know, you can't contain the love of God. The, the breadth of God's love is overwhelming. The depth of God's love is uncontainable. And so if you are filled with God's love, it will spill. And so that's what we're gonna sing right now. God, I, I'm in your presence. And I just wanna go deeper in love with you. Because I know this, the more you fall in love with Jesus, the more you'll love other people as your neighbors. So let's sing that out right now. Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church, located in Hagerstown, Maryland. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.